Welcome to Interchange. I'm your host, Doug Storm. It's September 8, 2020. Today's show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising. Our opening song is the title track from the 2011 release from trumpeter Phil Ranelin. This is Perseverance. Late last month in Kenosha, Wisconsin, the police shooting of a black man named Jacob Blake set off riots and looting in a city just a little smaller than Bloomington, Indiana. Three months prior, the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin prompted a string of riots and looting that resonated throughout the country, from Portland to Chicago to New York City. Media outlets and politicians alike have condemned the riots and looting. In a moment of bipartisan agreement with President Donald Trump, presidential nominee Joe Biden suggested that rioting and looting are distinct from protesting. Biden's statement follows decades of politicians and media outlets alike dividing protesters along the lines of looting and property destruction, equating these with the racialized violence of policing. Though the riots and looting of the George Floyd uprising might seem spectacular or particular to our moment, looting as a strategy of black liberation is at least as old as the enslavement of black bodies. Looting is political and it is a strategy that opens possibilities for freedom from within property relationships still defined by white supremacy. This week, producer Brady Heberlin speaks with Vicki Osterweil, author of the recent book In Defense of Looting, a riotous history of uncivil action. In her book, Osterweil argues that looting is a strategy that has been utilized for centuries to fight enslavement and white supremacy. To make this argument, Osterweil draws on the history of property ownership capitalism, and their ties to white supremacist society to show us how looting opens possibilities for a joyful life in common in spaces reclaimed from white supremacy and capital. Spaces where people are able to help each other meet their needs and desires. In recent weeks, coverage of Osterweil's book on looting has been widespread, with interviews appearing in The New Yorker and NPR. In our interview with Osterweil, we focus on the political implications of looting as a strategy of collective liberation, grounding our discussion in the history of slavery, mass incarceration, and marinage in the United States. And now, Reclaiming What's Ours, with Vicki Osterweil, on Interchange, on WFHB. book in defense of looting you've written that you're not really a historian in the traditional sort of institutional sense but your book really weaves together histories of race colonization rebellion slavery fugitivity all to sort of give us the sense that looting is what you call the most radical tactic of liberatory movements um so i guess i'm wondering what what brought you to this thread of inquiry what inspired you to write about looting as a tactic yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, the 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 book itself is based on a piece that I wrote in two thousand and 
2014, um, which was during the Ferguson uprising. Um, <clears throat> during during Ferguson um, and the first wave of Black Lives Matter, a lot of people who um, proclaimed themselves allied to the goals of the movement um, said that they didn't support rioting and looting. Um, and for me, um, someone who was observing and eventually participating where I was, I wasn't in Missouri, but, um, but, but someone who'd been on the ground in movements for, for at that point, about five years now, 11, God, I'm so old. Um, uh, I, I really saw how clearly, um, in that moment, it was a very historically and politically confused idea because the, the very movement in Ferguson, the reason that it came to national attention um, and prominence was precisely because there had been a few nights of rioting and looting. They had burned down a, a gas station and looted a, a, a target. And uh, I believe there was a target at that time. There's been so much looting in the last five years, I can't keep track of which was where. But, um, you know, and, and on Florissant Avenue, there had just been a lot of, a lot of looting and rioting and, and fighting with the police. And then, so you had all these people coming up and saying, you know, I support the movement, but I don't support the rioting and looting. And my question to them was like, what movement, like, what are you talking about? This movement emerged in a moment of rioting and looting. So if you, you, if you support the movement, but not the rioters, then like, I don't understand what movement you're supporting, you know? Um, and from that, like from that contradiction that I was sort of like, you know, picking up in the moment, um, and, you know, I was already, like I said, I was already at that point pretty active. So I already had ideas about direct action versus nonviolence. But but the Rebels of Ferguson really clarified all that. And the response that people had to it really clarified all that for me and really, like, instructed me in the way in which, like, it was this crucial part of an uprising against white supremacy and the police was attacking property. And that looting was this way in which... Um, those two terms, white supremacy and policing, were connected via property. Um, and that seemed like something that, that people who want to insist on the importance of nonviolence weren't really comfortable talking about or thinking about. And, and the attacks on property for them was too far. Whereas struggle against racism or struggle against police violence seemed accessible, acceptable. Struggle against, um, struggle against property seemed against the pale. So for me, like looting was this clear way in which like, actually it's this tactic that has emerged just directly to make those connections and to attack at those connections. And it freaks people out precisely because it's so radical and because it gets to the root of all those things. So I think that was where my head was, space was at um, at the time. It also had to do with, um, in 2011, um, in the summer of 2011, there were these massive riots in the UK after the police killing of Mark Duggan, a black man there. Um, and I had observed a tremendous amount of the UK left, um, both sort of radical and sort of liberal um, labor left, just totally denounce those riots and, and really fail to build common cause with the rioters. Um, and that to me seemed like a very obvious tragedy and has, and has, in my opinion, ever since really damaged the possibilities of, of alliances in the UK and radical alliances in the UK and has only now started to be recovered from there. Um, so those two things combined, I, it felt really important to me that, that we not make the mistake in our movements here in the US, that we, not, that we not get confused and disavow the people who are doing this most radical and powerful direct action just because it makes some of us uncomfortable. <laughs>
This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising, with Vicki Osterweil. Osterweil argues that looting is one of the most radical tactics taken up in the fight against white supremacy, with its origins in escaping bondage as property in the Confederate South by stealing oneself away to freedom. I guess I'm curious how you saw rioting and looting playing out in Ferguson, you know, with the sort of note that up until the George Floyd uprising, Ferguson was sort of this like image of rioting and looting and a black liberation movement on the streets, you know, the sort of first major image of that in many years. Like it was, it was this huge thing. And now the George Floyd uprising, we're seeing in some ways what happened in Ferguson, you know, in different and innovative ways, but rioting and looting are still these sort of key pieces you know, how did you see this play out in Ferguson and what can you say about the current moment based on, on your understanding of the role of looting? So in Ferguson, um, you know, I mean, part of what happened was it spread, you know, with, with the murder of Eric Garner as well in New York. So it spread to New York and the Bay. There were a lot of solidarity demonstrations, a lot of um, highway shutdowns. Um, but looting and rioting, like it happened in Ferguson, then it happened again in Baltimore after the murder of Freddie Gray. We saw it in um, Milwaukee after Silval Smith was murdered um, and in um, and in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina as well, where they actually like shut down a highway and looted semi-trucks on a highway and left them as burning barricades, um, which was pretty incredible and which I connect in the book directly to um, a movement in 1877, a railroad strike in 1877, when that was a very similar tactic where they would, they would, loot box cars and leave them burning on the rail yards so that it would both enforce the strike and like provide an opportunity for attacking railroad property and looting. Um, so I think that was a, a very, that's an echo. There have been all these echoes through history, which, you know, I didn't know about that 1877 strike beyond its existence until I started doing research for this book. So discovering all these echoes was, was very powerful and, and really um, an important part of what happened in Ferguson though, despite all that spread was that it largely, um, it largely remained in Ferguson and it, it, they rioted basically for two weeks, which is incredible um, in the history uh, in that history. Usually even these really huge famous riots, Detroit, Newark, Watts, the Holy week riots after Martin Luther King, very few of them last more than four or five days, um, LA um, 92. So the fact that there was rioting for two weeks in this, in this suburb, you know, of, of St. Louis was incredible and was, was truly inspiring. But the fact that it was contained to this one location allowed a lot of different forces to descend on it, you know, sort of peaceful protesters, you know, a lot of a lot of well-meaning white liberals came in and tried to sort of like control the narrative. There was a ton of media attention. Political leaders could come up and sort of, you know, divert the anger. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways it, it was contained because it was so contained geographically, you know. And in the in the ensuing years, five, I believe it's now five, of the most visible protest leaders in Ferguson have been murdered under mysterious circumstances. They are presumed, and I presume, murdered by the police and by the state. So that's been really horrible. Um, and the rebels of Ferguson have not stopped struggling um, and continue to be, in my opinion, among the most important revolutionaries of our era. It's time for a break. This is The Invincible Youth by Kamasi Washington. 
off of the 2018 release, Heaven and Earth. More on looting as a strategy in the fight against white supremacy when Interchange returns on WFHB. back to Interchange. Our show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising, with Vicki Osterweil. In this segment, we discuss the ways that the George Floyd uprising has resonated and how looting attacks at the roots of white supremacy, property relations, and settler colonialism. So what we're seeing more recently that I think is different is just the incredible, utterly unprecedented explosion of the spread of the riots. They've been in all 50 states, right? Almost every major city in the country has seen some looting and rioting. Many small cities, um, you know, Aurora, Colorado, Kenosha, obviously, is just a city of just under 100,000. So the incredibly widespread nature of this current uprising is, is truly, truly unprecedented. And it means that it's been harder for it to be contained because it's happening everywhere. So classic narratives like outside agitators aren't working as well, although the white anarchist line has caught some traction. But lots of the narratives that are used to contain riots when they happen in one place aren't working that well because they're, it's, they're everywhere. And they've been ongoing. It's wild. Like the last, like in the last three weeks, like, Courthouses have been burned all over the country. Like Kenosha was obviously this huge, huge uprising. But the week before, um, there was, you know, there was looting in Chicago and the Magnificent Mile. This week, there it's come back to Minneapolis again. It's just, it's everywhere. This uprising is ongoing for three months. And that is genuinely unlike anything other than the 60s and like the 1860s and 70s. And, and one of the reasons that looting is reappearing both in this moment, it's resonating, but also across centuries, it's the sort of strategy of the oppressed um, that allows it to take as its starting point a certain 
especially racialized relationship to property and the means of life. Can you say more about that relationship to property that's sort of at the center of like looting as a strategy? Absolutely. So looting as a strategy is a, a immediate response that, res- that, um, that attacks at the way that white supremacy, anti-blackness, settler colonialism, property law, and police are all interconnected in the United States. In the U.S., property in its very earliest forms, private property meant stolen land, land stolen from indigenous people succumbing to genocide, and, and enslaved laborers. At first, many of them indigenous and some of them European, but eventually almost exclusively African, African slaves. And so as the ideology of freedom developed in America and in the revolutionary period, the founding fathers started talking about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is a modification of a John Locke quote, which was life, liberty, and the pursuit of a state. So the pursuit of happiness has always been low key, the pursuit of property, but just made to sound more appealing. That property in that moment, the founding fathers had to explain, well, okay, what about all of these people in America, these indigenous and, and, and largely black people who have no property, who have no access to property, to life or to liberty? How do we explain that? And the explanation was they're black and black people aren't people, not really, they're property, right? This is the, this is the emergence of racial ideology. And then whiteness begins to form in distinction to that. So whiteness becomes whiteness is a form of property that you have that gives you citizenship, that gives you humanity, that gives you the possibility of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is why we've seen over the centuries, whiteness is a potentially expanding category. Irish, German, Czechs, Slavs, uh, Catholics of all kinds, Jews, for much of American history, were not considered white, but have been welcomed into whiteness. And now we're starting to see some of that with, with Asian populations, Southeast Asian populations. Some people are starting to enter into whiteness slowly because whiteness isn't actually a thing. <laughs> it is, it is or, or it is precisely a thing. It is not actually a kind of person. It's not a culture. It's not a nation. It is property. It is a property that you can be given that can be taken away by the state um, and, by, and by capitalism. Whereas blackness is a mark, is a mark from which there is no escaping under white supremacy and under anti-blackness. And it's a mark of being or becoming property, being, being potential property. And after the end of slavery, um, that ideology really changed from slavery, slave to criminal. So now it's a mark of criminality as much as it is a, a mark of property, but, that, but that it remains the same logic, the same sort of the questions of disposability that are being brought up so much in these movements and, and that we see with the police lynching black people in public constantly. That's a very long and complicated history, which I've tried to do very quickly, but it is fundamentally about the shape of blackness and settler society in America and the way that property is innately, structurally defined around these racial concepts and that there is no property without white supremacy and anti-blackness. There is no property without settler colonialism. And so when black people rise up and when they loot, they're not just attacking property, they're also attacking whiteness, they're also attacking the police, and they're attacking the ways they all connect with each other. And that's why in the book I argue for a few chapters, a few of the chapters of the book are about how escaped slaves are the first image in American history of black looters, because that's what they're doing. They're expropriating themselves as property, and in so doing, abolishing property and attacking whiteness. This is Interchange on WFHB. 
Today's show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising, with Vicki Osterweil. Osterweil argues that looting is one of the most radical tactics taken up in the fight against white supremacy, with its origins in escaping bondage as property in the Confederate South by stealing oneself away to freedom. You even describe the way that escaped slaves, when they gathered, you know, in more extreme forms, when they formed these sort of maroon communities, they would describe it as stealing away. Like there was an act of looting in being fugitive from the slave system. Can you describe that a little bit more as this sort of element of the collective intelligence of escaped slaves as some of the first sort of looters that we know in, in the U.S.? Absolutely. So that's that's really important. That's that's just a lot of that is based on the incredibly vital work of Sadia Hartman and her book Scenes of Subjection. Um, also, um, you know, Fred Moten talks a lot about fugitivity. Um, Christina Sharp um, in her book In the Wake really helped me see see a lot of this. Um, and I really want to cite these, these important theorists because it's it's really important that you know they are all analyzing and recognizing the experience of the enslaved themselves. So Sadia Hartman really underlines and talks about how the enslaved described, you know, when they had a meeting, they called it stealing the meeting. And when they, when they escaped from the, from the plantations, they called it stealing away. They understood sort of ironically and wryly the way in which their status and property was an absurd, as property was an absurd contradiction, which through their own action, they could smash and they could fight against. The police in America are, are, um, are developed explicitly out of forces that are designed in Southern cities to control what were called slave quarters. In the slave economy, we, we think a lot about plantations, we thought a lot about plantations, but there were also Southern urban centers where a number of enslaved black folks were living. And the way that that worked was they would be hired out, which meant they would be given to an employer for a wage. Often their owner would not live in the city or would live some distance. And so these, these black laborers would live in you know, in, in a sort of ghetto, basically, in, in a slave quarter, where, unfortunately for the white power structure, um, this was necessary for the economy of the southern cities, but it produced a, a level of autonomy. And, you know, those, those cities were often stations on the Underground Railroad. They were spaces where revolt could be planned, where subversive Creole religious practices could be performed. Um, Cedric Robinson talks a lot about, about those practices in Black Marxism and the way in which a sort of syncretic African culture could be developed in these slave quarters. And that was a great threat to, to white order because the, the slave owners, you know, despite all of their professed ideology, knew that they were in constant danger of rebellion, a fear which grew much stronger after the Haitian Revolution um, in the 1780s and 90s. So they basically developed these things called, they were called guards and watches, but they were the first, the first police forces, modern police forces in the entire world were developed in these Southern cities to patrol these slave quarters in order to try and, and, and control black people to make sure they weren't threatening property. But they also practiced a lot of the things that we understand as policing today. They would do random terror. They would just stop some people and attack them for no reason, but other people could pass. They would march through in big, big contingents. The guard would sort of get in all their gear and march through the slave quarter loudly and just like, you know, chasing people around. All of these sort of tactics that now have become really common in, in police societies for the first time, um, were developed in these cities. But then simultaneously in the North, in like in New York, you have police departments uh, forming on the basis of enforcing the fugitive slave law, 
one thing that you know we 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 tend to think about slavery as happening largely in the South, but it was flourishing in the North through the American Revolution. There were you know the most important uh, slave market in in the Americas until the until the turn of the 18th century was in Rhode Island. After the American Revolution, 20,000 slaves escape from the North. They they basically destroy slavery in the North. It's it's actually the American Revolution also includes the largest slave revolt in American history until the Civil War. Slavery is largely abolished by the action of the enslaved in the North and is slowly legally abolished in the North. Although in the 1850s, there's still slaves um, in, in New Jersey and in Pennsylvania and in New York. So it's, it's hardly totally abolished. But anyway, and so the police develop because they have to enforce fugitive slave laws that um, slaves who escape on the Underground Railroad to the North would be recaptured by police and by slave capture by slave catchers. And a big part of the abolition movement in the North would be these riots, these looting, these looting moments where largely black freed people would riot against slave catchers, free the captive who was going to be sent back south, and steal, you know, steal them from, from the slave catchers and take them away to safety. Um, and so police largely developed to repress that and also to repress labor unrest. If we understand it as looting which I think we can and we should because it is public mass expropriation of white property in the name of black liberation. If we see that as looting, then we can see that from the very beginning, all of these repressive forces, the ideas of property, the ideas of white supremacy, the police, legal systems in general, urban modes of control, urban bureaucracies, all of these things partially form in response to looting. It's one of the key driving forces of American history in a certain, in, in this sense, in a repressive sense. Um, and so we have to understand it as a really dangerous liberatory tactic to the state, one that it responds to with incredible seriousness and has with incredible seriousness for centuries. It's time for another break. This is Freedom Jazz Dance from Miles Davis, off of the 1967 release Miles Smiles. More with Vicki Osterweil on her new book, In Defense of Looting, a riotous history of uncivil action, when Interchange returns on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising. In this segment, we discuss the roots of policing in slave patrol and slave catching and how looting allowed slaves to steal themselves away and sustain life in fugitivity. You started to get at this, which is the abolition of slavery came about after many, many uprisings and riots and instances of looting. And in your book, you talk about the fact that, right, as school children were taught, like, who got rid of slavery? Abraham Lincoln got rid of slavery. But in reality, there's this obsession with pointing to leaders in history and usually white leaders, where what's often what's actually driving these huge changes are uprisings by the people who are oppressed. And this is something you're really highlighting in your book, I think, and I think is maybe one of the most important takeaways um, from what you're writing, which is that looting is a is a, an experiment in a collective intelligence that makes real change, real and material change in the world. I guess I'm curious if you can say more about these people who take on like looting as their strategic task. What does the focus on leaders in history, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Harriet Tubman, what does that you know, leave out about all of the thousands or millions of people who are struggling and not having textbook chapters written on them or not having the historical books written on them usually, you know? So here, this is like, this is where I'm really, really indebted to uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America, um, a book I read about a decade ago for the first time and completely just changed the way I thought about. I already considered myself, you know, a revolutionary in some ways, like an anarchist, I thought about things that way, but but that book completely blew blew my mind wide open um, about the, the ways in which history is really, really genuinely not formed in the ways that we are taught it. You know, you're talking about the sort of collectivity, and again, to come back to Cedric Robinson, I'm, I'm rereading Black Marxism right now, so it's right on my mind, but that collectivity in America has has very, very often been Black, has been black, the black Black people in America. Um, it has also been indigenous and many other many other oppressed classes, but it, but but black people in America have very very often, and in the Americas in general, have been uh, at the forefront of of these struggles and this collective intelligence because we're taught to think of history as a series of wars and treaties and leaders. We're taught to think of history as rather orderly, actually. You know, even even things like World War One. We're sort of even that we're sort of taught to thought, th- think of as being triggered by this assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, and you know then there's all these alliances, and the way we're taught history is to try and pull that chaos together into like a very neat line, so that you can understand really simple cause and effect, um, and and simple leaders and simple moments and and clear clear cut social social histories, and I think what moments of struggle like the one we're living through right now reveal is that in fact. Moments of real change are driven from below by mass mass movements that usually resist what would be defined as leadership in that way. That usually resists what I think a lot of the left would call organization in that way. A lot of a lot of the the revolutionary left is very interested in you know the the twentieth century communist experience, in particular the Bolsheviks and or Mao, thinking through the ways in which what happened in the twentieth century was you know, workers got concentrated into this party and then they were organized. And then because they were organized, they were capable of capturing power. And 
a lot of people on the left aren't willing to talk about ways in which, yes, they, they conquered power, but they failed to revolutionize life. They made things better in many places. Things were made much better for the people by these movements. And in many, th- in many places, they weren't. But nowhere did, did, did life truly get revolutionized. Did capital and white supremacy really start to break down? There were challenges against it that were then reasserted. Those, those forces were then reasserted over time through those revolutionary processes. You know, I mean, part of the critique of that, you know, it's, it's very vulgar to say the problem was leaders, but, but there, there, is this, there is this desire on the part of people who are in, trying to understand a movement or a moment to be able to explain it easily. People want to be able to explain it simply. And I'm sympathetic to that. Um, I also spent, I wrote a book trying to explain these things. They're actually much, much more complicated, much more, um, much more sort of both an aggregation of thousands of acts, large and small, and concentrated bursts of mass action that don't have simple leaders, that don't have simple narratives, but are instead reflecting shared desires, shared experiences of oppression, shared memories culturally of both oppression and freedom. And in the Americas, that memory of freedom has largely been carried through the Black radical tradition and the Black experience, um, through Black art, through Black culture, and through Black struggle. Everyone in, everyone in, the, in the U.S. left um, who talks about quote-unquote identity politics as being bad or thinks that these are just sort of race things completely misses the fact that the Black dream of abolition and the Indigenous dreams of freedom have formed even our, even our deepest you know, revolutionary ideas and concepts of liberation from like the European socialist movement of the 1800s, which was engaging very directly with reading indigenous um, works of and, and African works of philosophy, but then was not talking about them. The, uh, the 20th century Marxists who were very often reading black liberation, but not crediting it. Um, so there's this, there's this really, really deep strain of and tradition of, of um, freedom and remembrance of oppression and a different possibility that emerges not exclusively, but but most intensely from the experience of the black and the indigenous in in these settler colonies in in the Americas. And that finds expression in the streets, um, not always exclusively by black and indigenous people, but but with them in in the vanguard, if you will. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising, with Vicki Osterweil. Osterweil argues that looting is one of the most radical tactics taken up in the fight against white supremacy, with its origins in escaping bondage as property in the Confederate South by stealing oneself away to freedom. A lot of people on the left are critiquing people who are rioting or looting for not being organized, not having their demands. This is a classic critique Mm. of of rioting, especially is if you don't have demands, how do you expect anyone to listen to you? And part of what you're saying in your book that rioting and looting are a form of communication, but they're not directed toward people empowered. So there's this kind of knowledge transfer that's happening between people that's as much as about, for example, in Minneapolis, about redistributing looted goods for the collective benefit of all, as they are about uh, abolishing or defunding the police. 
And this point about, you know, disorder and organization, you mentioned Fred Moten earlier, really reminds me of both Fred Moten's concept of the undercommons of this sort of source of black joy, which is both chaotic and fluid and necessarily about being fugitive from slavery at one point, from capitalism, you know, these, all of these structures. Yeah, in order for the reproduction of, of power and profit. What that leaves me wondering with looting in particular, it is it is disorganized, it is chaotic, but what does that tell us about potential forms of organization that could be happening? It's not random, right? It's not random. And if you look at if you look at the way uh, rioters actually move, they actually move with with great levels of organization. So it's harder to see in the in the current uprisings right now because things are still moving. But in Watts, Newark, and Detroit, there's they've they've done a lot of reporting on this, and looters would would move, there would be sort of two, two different, there'd be different squads. There'd be sort of lead looters who would drive up to a shop, break out the windows, start looting, and then drive away, pulling the police after them. And then a second wave of people would come through that the territory had been opened. You would also have people using, listening to police scanners, listening to the radio, calling in on payphones, calling the police and telling them that looting was happening somewhere where it wasn't. And the police would scramble away from a zone they had just oppressed, and then everyone could move back in and start rioting again. So there are these very, very involved and dramatic forms of coordination and organization that are happening. They're just non-hierarchical. They're just people acting with their knowledge of the local space and with their knowledge of each other and their small groups and, and moving and acting in ways that seem immediately effective to them. And that is a form of organization that is missed by by the left, you know, by people who want who want things to be orderly and to have meetings and to have goals and to have and to talk really clearly, you know, to the powers that be and in the structures of demands and and goals and with the idea of capturing power. And I think one thing that the history of Black Revolt in the U.S. in particular really shows us is that often revolt is the thing in itself. It is not actually a mediated. Um, attempts to build power towards a future date. It's the thing in itself. So you have maroon communities develop. People people escape the plantations or take them over. People immediately improve their lives by getting the police out of their neighborhood and sharing everything that exists, all the commodities that exist in you know together. Burning down the you know the in, in Kenosha, for example, burning down the the parole office, burning down you know in in um in Minneapolis, obviously the police precinct, but also in the '60s riots. One thing that they would do is they would attack department stores that operated on credit, and they would make sure that all the credit records had been destroyed before they would burn the building down. So there was this very active way, you know, and they didn't have computer systems and they weren't backups often. So they would literally be freeing themselves from debt in these riots. You know, these things are, it's not about demanding a debt freeze, <laughs> right? It's like, no, I'm ending my debt. Like it's over. Like I don't want to, I don't need to ask you to abolish the police. I'm destroying their base. Ooh, excuse me. Um, I'm destroying their base. I'm, I'm getting rid of, of the place they operate out of. I'm, I'm not letting them operate. It's the thing in itself. And I think that that is a form of organization that refuses mediation by the state and refuses mediation even by organizers and just tries to get its, its direct action and its most sort of, you know, direct action has come to be kind of a buzzword and mean a lot of different things for a lot of people. But in its original sense, direct action meant you do the thing you want to see done. And that's it. And I think that really that looting is, is, is direct in that way, in a way that protesting isn't. But I think like what is so powerful about rioting and looting 
and what is so powerful about the black radical tradition in America has been demonstrating that um, that the actions themselves are more important than this idea that what you need to do is like form form power before you can act. No, you act as a way of forming power, and it's just a, it's a very different idea about what politics looks like. And so a lot of people like to dismiss it as non-political. It's time for another break. This is Charles Mingus with Freedom, off of the 1964 release Mingus, 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 Mingus. Does a riot have collective intelligence? Vicki Osterweil answers that question when Interchange returns on WFHB. This mule ain't from Moscow. This mule ain't from the South. But this mule's had some learning. Mostly mouth to mouth. This mule could be called stubborn and lazy. But in a clever sort of way, this mule could be working, waiting, and learning, and planning for a sacred kind of day. A day when burning sticks and crosses is not mere child's play, but a madman in his most incandescent bloom, whose loveless soul is imperfection in his most lustrous groom. So stand fast, young old mule, soothed in contemplation. That burning hole and aching thigh. Your stubbornness is of the living, and cruel anxiety is about to die. Freedom for your daddy. Freedom for your mama. Freedom for your brothers and sisters, but no. Freedom for me. Freedom for your daddy's daddy. Freedom for your mama's mama. Freedom for your brothers and sisters. But no freedom. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising, with Vicki Osterweil. In this segment, we discuss the collective intelligence and movements of rioters and looters, from the Watts riots to today's uprising. So you mentioned these maroon communities, and they've come up a couple times in the course of our conversation and what we're sort of getting at in the course of this conversation is that there's a link between these maroon communities, you know, one of the things we're getting at, there's a link between these maroon communities coming out of escaped slaves who are joining these communities uh, and what's happening there in terms of shared shared life, you know, the people sharing food, sharing resources, et cetera, and what's happening in looting, both, both on the axis of collectivity, but also in terms of uh, a sort of strategy at play. Could you say, first of all, you know, what is a maroon community? I kind of gave a brief description of it, but this is something you feature in your books. And also, you know, what is what is the thread between maroon communities and the current moment and looting? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. So maroon communities are communities of of basically of escaped um, enslaved people um, who have who have fled the plantation, but don't go back into the colony. They exist outside of the political structure of the colonies um, or the states as as after the revolution, and they instead form form sort of outlaw communities, often in in territory that is not as desirable to, to the colony itself. So in the Great Dismal Swamp is one major place. Um, there were a lot of maroon communities in, in Florida, um, which was not very well colonized because it was owned by Span by the Spanish for a long time, owned, quote unquote, but it was colonized by the Spanish for a long time. Um, and often these maroon communities would would either merge with or be in close contact with indigenous communities. The most famous are the Seminoles of Florida. Um, the U.S., waged 40 years of war on the Seminoles in Florida, um, which we get taught sort of as a footnote, the Seminole Wars, but were actually these mass, mass conflicts that were really dramatic and that cost the U.S. a tremendous amount of money and energy and that really only got fought to a draw. The Seminoles were never really vanquished. Those were communities of Maroons, which just means someone who escaped slavery, indigenous, uh, indigenous communities in Florida as well. And they formed tribes that got called Seminoles Marinage or like it gets talked about more centrally in the histories of the West Indies and of um, and of and of South America um, because maroon communities were just often more central to the political narratives of those of those countries. But Duty Bookman, who is Duty Bookman, um, um, was a maroon leader, um, a voodoo priest who held a ceremony the night before the first slave revolt that kicked off the Haitian Revolution and 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 organized it and, and helped call for it and and he was a maroon. And, and Du Bois talks about this a lot in Black Reconstruction, how the Maroons out of the South um, who fled to Florida, often to Mexico as well, and up to, North, and up to the Northern colonies in the U.S., were the, the basis of the abolitionist movement. You know, uh, Harriet Tubman obviously was a Maroon. Like, they're, they're just are all... And so they formed... The communities that they formed were often, often practiced what, we would, what, what I would refer to as, as looting raids. They would attack plantations free their their kin um, from the plantations and bring them back to their communities where they could live in relative safety and autonomy. And during the Civil War, um, those those maroon communities were incredibly crucial as spying spying on Confederate lines, reporting news north, and also being a waypoint for, for maroons during the general strike of the enslaved, what 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 Du Bois called the general strike of the slaves, the mass uprising that takes place during the Civil War on the plantation. Um, they were often main meeting points for, for people who are, who are fleeing and resisting the slave regime and the Confederacy. So the history of Maroon communities now um, is, you know, as Reconstruction was defeated, as the U.S. spread its tendrils across the entire continent, as it solidified its state, as property control and ownership increased, Maroon communities became, obviously, and as slavery was, was technically and legally, although not actually really abolished, um, maroon communities came more of a sort of metaphorical image than uh, than a than a full reality in the same way. But they but they remain. Uh, it remains an image of of freedom. The modern day plantation, in many ways, now is the prison system. You know, the prison industrial complex is uh, as Russell Maroon Schultz, who has written great, beautiful histories of the Maroons, and and people should read and support um, Russell Schultz. He's currently trying to get out of prison at this moment. He he writes from inside from inside prison and does incredible research on the Maroons, despite having been in solitary confinement for over two decades. 
Um, so, so support, support Russell Maroon Schultz by his book, which goes to his support. I, I would urge listeners to look him up. Um, he's trying to get out right now and has been for, for decades and, and actually escaped prison twice and then returned. So, so we can imagine a Maroon community forming now if in this uprising there were to be a mass prison break. We could imagine a Maroon community being uh, the people who had escaped from prison and the, the community that formed to protect them, we could think of as a Maroon community. Uh, but yeah, I think, you know, Marinage and the idea of the fugitive is just an incredibly important image of freedom in the, in the United States. And I think the way in which Maroon communities in the U.S. and also in Latin America and South America um, merged with indigenous, still existing indigenous communities shows us the way in which there are these ideas of living otherwise, as Ashen Crowley calls it, of, of living differently that we can imagine, that have been imagined in action by liberated slave, by, by escaped slaves and by um, surviving and resisting indigenous peoples that have persisted into the present and that, that those images of freedom um, can shape the way we might think about what freedom would look like rather than trying to imagine taking over the state as it exists and redistributing the wealth that exists now, which is destroying our planet and ecocide. Instead, what, would, what, would, uh, what can we learn from, from maroon struggles and indigenous struggles and how can they ima- help us imagine a better, freer way of living rather than trying to imagine it through the lens of democracy that we've been taught is the revolutionary tradition of America, but which is in fact not one. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Reclaiming What's Ours, Looting in an Age of Uprising, with Vicki Osterweil. Osterweil argues that looting is one of the most radical tactics taken up in the fight against white supremacy, with its origins in escaping bondage as property in the Confederate South by stealing oneself away to freedom. And we're coming up on our time here now, but I guess I, I guess I wanted to ask you broadly, sort of on this note of imagining other ways of living, just to sort of sum up what we've been talking about so far, I have asked you two questions. So the first is, what possibilities for living otherwise does looting open? And what, how do those potentials, how are those potentials expressing themselves right now in the context of the George Floyd uprising? As far as you can, as far as you can tell from within the moment, which is an impossible place to speculate, <laughs> at, but we'll give it a try. Totally, yeah. So looting, looting, looting imagines living otherwise in in a number of important and direct ways. Um, so first of all, it can only occur in a riot zone or in a in a zone where police have been repressed. So we can imagine. So it's it's a place in which we can live without police and without their laws, and it imagines just taking all of these goods, which are produced by people just like us all around the world, you know, in sweatshops, people who have to live for a wage and giving them to each other for free and sharing them for free. And it imagines a world in which we can safely share the products of our labor without having them being mediated through the wage. So we don't have to work, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to work for a boss who takes most of what we do and takes all the profit and we just get whatever we can, we can squeeze out of his, his, you know, fingers um, and use that desperately to try and try and get things. We can get things for free. We can share them. We can live with in the, the, what is a great, great surplus, the incredible surplus that has been produced by capital that no one is allowed to share. We can imagine, we can imagine actually living in that surplus and sharing it together and leveling it 
and not and not having it concentrate in in um, some people's hands. We can imagine living joyously and freely together and without the enforce the violent enforcement of white supremacy, of anti-blackness, of of state and property, work and the wage. Um, so I think it imagines that. It also imagines, and I think this is one thing that makes people very uncomfortable. You know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, they're taking flat screen TVs, they're taking sneakers. You know, if they were taking rice and beans, like it would be fine. But like, it also imagines all of us having luxury and having the things we want and the things that make us pleasure. Liquor stores always get hit and people are always sharing liquor. It's a, it's a common thing that happens. And I think people are really critical of that. People who no doubt have wine cellars in their homes and who love drinking fancy scotch. But when, but when poor people, when black people take those things for free, suddenly it's an outrage, it's immoral. And instead, actually, like I think rioting and looting more specifically imagines a world in which we can explore pleasure and safety together and share it and not have to compete for it and not have to fight for it and not have to work for it in the ways that work is structured now around for a boss who takes the vast majority of our product in order to live in a fancy, you know, gentrifying neighborhood that drives people just like us out of, out of our community or whatever. That's one of the ways that looting imagines living otherwise. One way we can see it now is you're seeing a lot of people talk about, and this is a thing that really, really scares the police and politicians. People talk about a sense of freedom and joy and pleasure that they're experiencing in these streets, which under Trump, with coronavirus, with this police regime, that feeling of freedom and joy and pleasure in the streets has gotten so rare and so difficult to find. When you have riots and uprisings happening all over the country, in every state, in every city, you have millions of people. And I think the New York Times said it was like, the, by, by some count, the largest uprising in US history, the most people are participating. Millions of people, that's the Times, you know? Millions of people experiencing that feeling of solidarity and freedom and joy and pleasure and this ability to express, you know, it's not all positive. It's also an expression of grief and rage and and fed upness, you know, sick and being sick and tired. But but being able to express all of those things in these streets where normally, especially people of color, are harassed and followed and in constant danger from the police. Having that feeling, it never goes away. And there are documents, you know, I was reading from the 60s and, and you know, people wrote these books about it years later about how they never, that feeling never goes away. And now we've had millions of people, millions of people in this country have that feeling. And that's very, very dangerous to the state. That's very, very dangerous to capitalism because it means we can have that feeling if we can get rid of the police and property. If we can get rid of white supremacy, if we can, if we can, if we can destroy it, it's possible that we can have that feeling in our cities. And that's the most, in some ways, that's the most dangerous thing about a riot to society is that that, that feeling of communal expression of joy and grief and rage and pleasure and freedom and safety. And that's why they work so hard to make them feel dangerous. That's why they work so hard to make them dangerous, why they unleash their white vigilante um, stooges to murder us, why police murder people for looting. Um, they tear gas whole communities and engage in widespread collective punishment because they, they can't let us feel that. Because if we feel that, we'll realize that we don't need them and that they're the only thing standing between us and a more beautiful and otherwise world. That's our show. We'll close with the title track from the 2019 release from the Nat Turner Rebellion. 
laugh to keep from crying. The songs from this album were recorded between 1970 and 1972. Our thanks to Vicki Osterweil for carving out some time to speak with us. This episode of Interchange was produced by Brady Heberlin. Doug Storm mixed the audio. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Oh, oh, oh.